1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to start by reading just the first four verses, but we're going to go through different portions of this as we talk about the Lord's resurrection this morning. But we're going to start off with verses 1 through 4. So if you found 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start right at the beginning and read the first four verses together. The Bible says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein ye stand. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into our message this morning. Lord, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for a risen Savior. Lord, we can't thank you enough for the life that he has and that he gives to us. And so, Lord, we just praise you. We praise your name. Thank you for your word that tells us the truth about our Lord, about you and who you are. And so now as we get into your word today, I pray that you would just open our minds and hearts to receive that which you have for us to learn, that which you want to teach us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be able to open our hearts, would, would show us these things that are important to you and important to us so that we can rejoice in the life that you've given us and find joy in what you've called us to. And Lord, now I ask that you would just use me and fill me with your spirit. I need your help and I need your strength. I need your wisdom and I need your truth. Lord, just speak through me as your mouthpiece today that your word might be spoken, that we might hear from you today. And that's our desire. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We want you to do your work now. And so we give you this time. We give you ourselves. May you have your way and may you accomplish your will in this time. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul starts off this chapter by sharing what we would call the gospel message. Now, hopefully, as Christians, we recognize what Paul is saying here in these four verses as the gospel, okay? And there's three parts that he focuses on when he starts to tell about the truth that brought people life and that brought them to Christ. He says, number one, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he says, and that he was buried. He was in the grave, dead, for three days. And then the third part is that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, this is not just an exercise for Paul in trying to give them some information that's important. This message is the substance of Christianity. It's the substance of having true life. And that he spends the rest of the chapter in chapter 15 expounding upon these three points, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried. That means he was really dead and that he rose again the third day. And that's important, and we're going to look at that. But these three parts are important, okay? Christ had to die. There's no question about it. There was no other choice. We all were sinners. We are sinners. Romans chapter 3 makes that very clear. 
The whole chapter expounds upon the fact that we are all sinners. We, none of us seek after God. None of us are righteous. And so someone had to die. We deserved it. That was our penalty. That's what we had earned because of our sin. Somebody had to die. And Jesus stepped in in our place. He became our substitute and took the death that we should have had upon himself. And so Jesus died for our sins. That's important. In fact, you have to believe that in order to be a Christian. He died for your sins. Now, 1 John tells us there are a lot of people who are going to say, well, I'm not a sinner. I'm okay. I'm a good person. And the Bible says if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. We all sin. And that's why we all need a Savior. That's why we all needed Jesus Christ to die for our sins. So someone had to die And Jesus did it for us. That's the first part of the gospel. And then Paul says he was buried. In verse 3, he says how Christ died for our sins, and then going to verse 4, that he was buried. Now, it's important that Jesus was buried, because what do you do with dead people? Hopefully you bury them, okay? Otherwise, it's not going to be a pleasant situation if you try to keep them around for much longer after they're dead. It's not pleasant for them, and it's not pleasant for us, especially who are still alive. But when someone dies, you bury them. They did that back in the Bible. They've done it all through history. We still do it today. It's a common practice because we know that once the person is dead, that body's just going to decay and go away to dust. God tells us we were made of dust. We're going to return to dust. And so Jesus was buried because he was really dead. Now, there are a lot of people who don't want to believe that Jesus was dead. You, you can read scholarly magazines or you know, these worldly uh, doctors of philosophy or whatever their title is who've done all the research, and they come to the conclusion that, well, Jesus really wasn't dead because people don't come back from the dead. Scientifically, that doesn't happen. He was dead. Okay? They will say he swooned, he fainted. He wasn't really dead. He passed out. Maybe his heart stopped beating for a little while. These people didn't have the medical knowledge in order to know that he was truly dead. And so they buried him in the cold of the tomb. The damp environment there revived him, and that's why he came back to life. And my response to that is baloney, okay? The Bible says he was dead. He was dead. In fact, he was dead for three days. And in Bible times, if you were dead for three days, you were really dead. Okay, that's when the body starts to decompose. And they, they had no qualms about saying, okay, he's dead three days. Remember, just about a week or so before this event, when Jesus died on the cross, he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been dead four days. And when he said, Mary and Martha, don't worry, I'm going to bring him back to life, They complained. They were like, wait, 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 think about this, because he's been dead four days. He probably stinks really bad now. And he said, okay, beside that point, he's going to rise again. Lazarus was dead. Jesus brought him back to life. Jesus was dead. His father brought him back to life. Jesus rose from the dead, but he was truly buried. Now, the reality is that Jesus suffered a horrible death by crucifixion. We know that from the Bible, from history. That's been proven, and there's no doubt about it. And when someone was crucified, the Romans made sure that they were dead. There was no question about it, okay? 
And when you look at Jesus' crucifixion, it was more than just the crucifixion. Before he was put on the cross, he was beaten with a whip until his body was just torn to shreds, and he was bleeding profusely. Then he was brought before the soldiers, and the soldiers put a crown of thorns on his head that pierced his skull. They slapped him and beat him in the face. They pulled his beard out. So you imagine what Jesus looked like before he ever got to the cross and the suffering that he went through. He was already dying before he was put on the cross. And then they brought him to the cross. They made him drag the cross up to Golgotha. He fell and they impelled or compelled someone to help him bear that cross. But when they got up there, they took nails the size of railroad spikes and drove them through his hands and his feet and nailed him to that cross. And then they raised it up and dropped it down into that hole. And he, held, and he was held up there for six hours. Now, when the, when the Romans crucified somebody, usually the person died of suffocation before they bled to death. Because hanging on a cross with your arms outstretched and their feet nailed, they couldn't push up on their feet because the pain was too excruciating. And so they hung, and they would try to push up just to gasp for breath. So asphyxiation, basically, was how most people who were crucified died. But Jesus was already bleeding so profusely, I believe that he bled to death. The Bible says that he gave his blood. His blood was spilled on our behalf. But we know that he struggled for breath. Now, if you don't believe he died, the soldiers who came up afterwards should approve that because when they came around to break the legs of the uh, criminals on either side of him, they came to Jesus. They said, oh, he's already dead. We're not going to break his bones. The Bible predicted that. And so the soldiers shoved a spear up under his ribs into his heart. And the Bible says that blood and water came out. Now, around the heart, there's a, a layer called the pericardium. There's a, a small layer of water there. And you pierce that, and water will come out. And, of course, the blood that's in the heart will come out as well. That's one possible explanation about this blood and water. Other people say, or other doctors say, that when you die, if you've been dead for a certain amount of time, your blood starts to separate. The plasma and the blood cells separate. And so when your blood comes out, it comes out literally as blood and water. Regardless of which one or both of those are the fact, Jesus was dead. And so they buried him. And Paul states that here in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus was dead, and they put him in the grave. Now, for many people, they want that to be the end of the story. Because they don't want to believe in Christ. They don't want to believe that somebody can come back from the dead, because that's not scientific. That doesn't fit with their agenda or their way of thinking and their philosophy. But here's the great part of this story. And it's not a story, it's a truth. He just didn't die. It wasn't that he was just buried. Jesus rose again. Jesus came back from the dead. And, it, and Paul says he rose again according, uh, the third day according to the scriptures. The Bible predicted, in fact, Jesus predicted that he would rise again the third day. He, he told his disciples and those who were listening, he said, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it again. And those around him thought he was talking about the big building. In fact, the Pharisees confronted him and said, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this building. You think you're going to rebuild it in three days? 
And the Bible says they had no idea. They didn't understand what he was talking about. But he was talking about himself, how he was going to be crucified, how he was going to die. And then in three days, he was going to come back to life. And not just in a body, but a perfected, glorified body. And so Jesus rose again the third day. Why is that so important? Why is that so important that we believe that Jesus rose again? Because without the resurrection, we are of all men the most hopeless and the most miserable. Okay, Paul said that. If you'll go back to 1 Corinthians 15 and jump down to verse 12. Verse 12, Paul talks about this. He says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is vain also. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up. If so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man, talking about Jesus Christ, came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. What Paul says here is that Jesus' resurrection was extremely important because without that, there's no life or hope for us. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's no such thing as people coming back from the dead. People could deny that, but he did. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, we are most miserable. We are preaching a false message. In fact, we are still in our sins. Think about that. We are still in our sins without the resurrection. And you say, yeah, but I thought his blood was the atonement for our sins. Yes, that's true. Okay? That was the payment. But there's no life without the resurrection. If Jesus died and went to hell as he did for us for three days and never came back, then he's just like every other leader of every other religion that has ever existed that gives people no hope. Because death is all there is. And that's why Paul says, we are of all men most miserable. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't happen, throw the towel in, forget it, it's not worth it. But, verse 20, Christ is risen from the dead. And he is the first fruits. Now, I've explained this in past messages, but when he says he is the first fruits, in Israel, when they would gather the crop as it became ripe, they would take a sampling and bring it into the temple. It was called a wave offering, and they would wave it before the altar. But they would sample that crop and they, to see the quality 
of the entire crop from that sampling. And Paul uses that analogy here when he says Christ is the first fruits of them that slept. He's saying because Christ rose from the dead and look at who he is, look at the, the glorified body he received, look at what happened to him after he came out of the grave. He didn't stay on this earth forever. He didn't die again. He went to heaven to be with his father. That's the first fruits. That's the promise for us. And so Christ gives us the picture of what we can look forward to. But it's all because of the resurrection. Verse 35, if you jump down there, but some will say, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die, and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that the body shall be, but bear grain. It may be chance wheat or some other grain, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. Paul uses this analogy here of planting a seed. Now, I don't know how many of you are gardeners. I've had a long experience of gardening in my life, and I know at least in my experience, that most of the seeds I put in the ground I never see again, and I never see anything come out of the ground from them. And I think it's just me because I have black thumbs instead of green thumbs. I don't know. Okay? But the way God designed it is that you put a seed in the ground, and if you take a little kernel of, of corn and you plant that in the ground, it doesn't pop out of the ground with one little kernel of corn. Okay? When that plant starts to grow, it takes some time, but you see the little green sprout come up. And then over weeks and over months, that sprout gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until that small kernel of corn grows into a plant that could be six or seven feet tall. And on that plant then are several ears of corn with hundreds of other kernels of corn that came from that one Now, I've done this, but after that plant grows up, and then you dig down in the ground underneath to try to find that original kernel that that you planted, it's gone. It, it, It dies. It disintegrates. It's gone. It becomes the plant. And that's what Paul's saying here. We are seeds. Christ was the seed. He was planted, and from him there are the first fruits of those that slept. In other words, the the plants, the kernels that come after him, are the representation of the life that he gave. And because he brings life, he is the plant then, and he gives life to all of those who come after him. But in our Christian lives, we become that kernel. And unless we die first to ourselves so that God can grow out of us what he wants to bring out of our lives, nothing will ever happen. We have to become expendable for God's sake. Now, what Paul is also saying here is this. What you see in the harvest is much different than what you plant in the ground. And he's giving us a picture of our resurrection because this old body with wrinkles and pains and creaks that don't, and, and joints that don't work is not what we're going to come out of the ground with when Jesus comes back. We're going to get a glorified body just like Jesus Christ had. The pain's going to be gone. The suffering's going to be gone. The greatest part of the new body, the plant that comes out of the old seed, no more sin. We'll be free from sin. 
Right now, we are freed spiritually from the control of sin, but it still affects our bodies. Okay? If you woke up this morning and you rolled over and went, oh, that's sin affecting you. There were no moans and groans before sin came into the earth. There were no pains. There were no joints that needed to be replaced or that stopped working. That came from sin. And when we get a glorified body, all of that's going to be gone, but so will sin. And that's what Paul says here. Christ had to die in his earthly body and be raised in a glorified body so that he could provide the same thing for us. Jump down to verse 42 in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And again, what Paul's saying is, when Jesus came out of the grave, it wasn't that same frail, earthly body that he went into the grave with. It was a body. He arose bodily, but it was a glorified body that will never die again. And that's exactly what we will receive because Christ was the first fruits for us. That's what we're promised. We will receive a glorified body that will live forever. Now, Paul explains this through this chapter, but then we get to the end of the chapter. So jump down to verse 50. And this is the passage probably most of us are more familiar with. At verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, what Paul's saying is we can't take this body to heaven. And along with that, we can't take anything that's attached to this body as far as our physical belongings, as far as all the things that we gather to ourselves or want on this earth. That doesn't go either because that's built in corruption. This is a corrupt, sinful body that has to be done away with. We have to be given a perfect body. All the corruption of the world will be destroyed. And none of it's going to go to heaven with us. We won't need it. That's the whole point. And so Paul says, Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, in verse 51, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. That phrase right there is the key. We shall be changed. We shall be made perfect, is what Paul says. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Think about that. No death. The number one fear of mankind is dying. Why do you suppose that is? Because they have no hope. They don't know what's going to happen to them after they die. They don't know if something is going to happen to them after they die. All people know is what they have now. But Paul says if we hold on to the corrupt, we're not going to get to the incorrupt. We're not going to get to the glorified. That's why we have to die first to the corrupt. And he says... 
Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Christians have no reason to fear dying. In fact, honestly, I look forward to dying. Not the dying part, the other side of that. Okay? That's the hope. Now, I don't look forward to suffering and dying. And, I, you know, like my dad used to say, you know, I look forward to going to heaven. He said, but when I die, and this was back in the Cold War when Russia had nuclear bombs and stuff. He said, I hope Russia sends a nuclear bomb and it falls right there. He said, then I'll be in heaven. doesn't matter after that. But that should be our hope as Christians. That's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to getting out of this earth, to getting out of this old body, to getting and receiving from God a perfect, glorified body with no more sin. And one that we can have a perfect relationship with God in. There's no obstructions in heaven. There's no obstructions when we have that perfect body to our fellowship with the Lord. There's nothing that will distract us from that. That's the struggle we have on earth, is that the physical body and all the things that come with it distract us from what's important. So Jesus came out of the tomb the third day. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, because God is going to do the same thing for us. Now, it may not be the third day, but we're going to be in heaven if we're trusting Christ as Savior. We're going to get that glorified body. If we die before the rapture happens... We're going, to get, we're going to come out of the grave. In fact, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit uh, competitive. And I used to tell my brother, I hope I die before you do. And he said, what? And I said, well, because the Bible says that the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and I want to be before you. So that's just me. But that's what the Bible says. If we're dead, we're going to go first. If we're alive, we're going to follow them right on their heels. Okay? Regardless of whether we're first or second or last, it doesn't matter. We're all going if we're trusting Christ. Okay? But that's what God's promised us. That's what we have hope in. But here's the key. We aren't getting all that from God. God has not promised all of this because we deserve it. And there's where we have to understand this important point. We don't deserve any of this. We didn't deserve Christ to die for us. That's the problem with our culture today, is we have an entitlement mentality where we think we deserve things. I'll tell you one of the greatest dangers I see in the church is that people bring political democratic thinking into their practice of Christianity. And they start defining Christianity by, in political terms, such as, we deserve certain things because there are inherent rights. And I'm going to stand up for them no matter what it takes. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't stand up for other people's rights. We don't need to stand up for our own, because that's called self selfishness. It's called self-control. It's called self-protection. Whatever word you want to put on it, it's all about me. What did Christ say? You have to die in order to really live. So it's not about me. But here's what it comes down to. All of Christ's message basically is this. It's not stand up for democracy, stand up for your rights. It is be willing to give up your rights to serve others because that's what Christ did. And not only be willing to give up your rights, but be willing to give up your life because that's what love is defined by. Christ gave us that example. 
We talked about that on Thursday night. So we don't deserve anything. And the rights that we claim, we do not deserve them. They are a gift from God, but we still don't deserve it. We don't deserve anything. In fact, the only thing we deserve is eternal death and hell. That's what we deserve, if we want to be truthful about it. Now, is that what you want? Do you want, really, what you deserve? When it gets down to it, none of us do. No, we don't want what we deserve. And so we look to God for grace and mercy so that he can deliver us from what we deserve. And that's the story of the gospel. That's the message of Christ dying for our sins, being buried for us, and rising again the third day so that we can have that life that he's promised us in him. God does all of that because he loves us, not because we deserve it. In fact, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, it says, For when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the good people, he died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. He says, if you want to give your life for somebody, the people you would pick to give your life for are the good people, right? Those people that have high standing in society that mean something to you. But would you die for your enemies? Verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Not because we deserved it, but because he loved us. So when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ at Easter, it's about remembering more than just that he rose from the dead. It's a day to celebrate the love of God for us. And you can't take the components and the message of the gospel outside of the context of God's love. He died for our sins because he loved us. He went into the grave and literally to hell because he loved us. He rose again because he loved us. And he knew that's exactly what we needed. So we're celebrating more than just an empty cross and an empty tomb. We're celebrating the love of God. When we talk about this account or the story of Christ's death and resurrection, it's not a tragedy. It's not a drama. It's a love story. It's the greatest love story. And it began a long time before John 19 and a long time before 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about Christ's resurrection. In fact, it goes way back and starts even before Luke 2, where it talks about Jesus coming to the earth. God's love story goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because he's a God of love. He created a perfect earth, to accommodate and to provide for his ultimate creation, mankind, who he was going to put on that earth. All of creation demonstrates the love of God. Now, in my last few minutes, I'm going to depart from my normal procedure in, in giving you a message. Because I wrote, if you will, from Scripture, kind of 
my version of God's love story, starting at Genesis chapter 1. So if you put up with me for just a few minutes, I want to read this to you. God's love story begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the world not only for himself, but as a perfect home for perfect man, the highlight of his creation. It was a perfect place for a perfect man to enjoy and to fellowship with and love his creator. That was God's plan from the beginning because he loved us even before creation, even before the object of his love existed. And so we see that love existing in God alone before there was anything else or anyone else was the only motivation, the sole important motivation for our existence and the existence of all that we see around us in creation. After all, God is love. That's what his story tells us, and we know it's true because God is truth. Now, as many love stories go, unfortunately, God's love was not perfectly requited. Stories of unrequited love or one-sided love are stories where love is not openly reciprocated or even understood as such by the one who is loved. The one loved may not be aware of the admirer's deep and strong affection, or they may just consciously reject it. And that's the story of God's love for mankind. Didn't start that way, though. Adam and Eve started out with a perfect, loving relationship with God that brought perfect joy into their lives. But even though God had freely given to his loved ones everything they needed for a perfect, harmonious, and joyful life, they chose to act in selfishness, loving themselves rather than loving the creator who taught them to love. And when selfishness replaces love, joy is lost. In rejecting God's perfect love, Adam and Eve brought a curse upon themselves. They were cast out of the garden and out of God's presence, destroying the joy that was part of that perfect relationship. And instead, that joy was replaced with pain, with suffering, with sickness, and with death. All part of the curse that they brought on themselves and upon all mankind after them. The curse of sin. But God did not stop loving Adam and Eve. And although they could no longer live in harmony with him, God made a promise that his love story would not end with eternal separation. God would provide a way for all of his creation to know joy again and be able to love him as he loved them. And you know the rest of the story of Genesis. How Adam and Eve had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and generation followed generation until God's created earth became populated with thousands and with millions of people, all of whom God continued to love and to provide for and to care for, even though almost all of them rejected his love. But God's love could not ignore his justice forever. And so one day, he took the lives of all those who did not love him in a great flood. All the souls but eight perished. And those eight were the ones who followed him and sought his love. And those eight souls he kept safe in the ark while all the world and everyone else in it was destroyed. And so God began anew with eight people. Eight people in a much-changed creation, but one in which his love for his created souls remained unchanged. As generations began to pass and populations began to grow again, it didn't take long for people again to reject his love. And just like many before them, they chose selfishness over love, 
and separated themselves from joy and from God's blessing. And so it was that God chose out from among them a certain man who still did love him by the name of Abraham, whom he promised to bless with a great heritage, a large family, more than the stars in the sky, through one promised son named Isaac. And the family that would grow from him would become a symbol of the larger family that God intended to bring to himself one day through his son, Jesus Christ. As the generations of Abraham's family began to grow, God blessed and prospered them and demonstrated his love to them in multitude of ways. Yet, just like many before them, they rejected his love and instead loved themselves. And they, too, lost God's blessing And they lost their joy. So God, because of his love for them, let them go the way of their own choosing, that they might discover the consequences of a loveless life and realize the greatness of a love that they had spurned. In his love, God chastened his people with pain and suffering to drive them away from their selfishness and back to his love. But most would not turn back. And so it was that for many generations, only a very few of those God had created to rejoice in his love ever returned that love. Albeit imperfectly and from a distance, since the curse of Adam and Eve still separated man and God from perfect fellowship, but God still loved them all, regardless of whether his love was returned or not. Finally, it came to pass that one day God demonstrated his love in a way that transcended anything he had ever done before, because on that day he made himself to be one of his own creation. He came as a child, a baby, born of a virgin in a stable, to demonstrate to men what the true love of God is and what true love for others is. We know that this is the case because the Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And so the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, became the lowest of men and made himself a lowly servant to seek to serve and to restore to love those who had made themselves his enemies in their own selfishness. Yet the selfishness of sin had so corrupted the love of people that they couldn't see God's love, even when it was lived out before them in the person of God's Son. He fed their hungry. He healed their sick. He brought back to life loved ones who had died. He taught them how to love. He shared with them the truth of how they might find joy in God's love again. He lived love in front of them on a regular basis, but they rejected it anyway. And as they saw this love of God alive before their eyes, it caused them to feel the guilt of their own selfishness and sin. But rather than repent and return to God for restoration, they retaliated against him with scorn and hate and cruelty And in the most infamous criminal act in all of history, those who were the very objects of God's greatest love murdered their own creator. They may have thought that in killing the one who loved them, they would rid themselves of the guilt for not returning that love. Maybe they thought that now they could finally find joy in loving themselves. But what they failed to realize, though, is that joy can never be found apart from God's love. What they also failed to understand was that the death of the one who called himself God was God's plan all along. God's justice demanded death as the consequence for all those who did not love him. The wages of sin is death, his book tells us. 
Thus, every man who failed to love God perfectly was doomed to the grave and to hell and to eternal separation from God, forever separated from the joy of a loving relationship with their creator. And even though his death was carried out by those who rejected him, that death became the payment for the very sin that caused it. It was love that motivated Jesus Christ to take the fiery hell on himself that was the just punishment for all who rejected his love. It was his love that drove him to be separated from his own father, the very essence of his being, while for three days his body lay in the tomb and his soul descended into the darkness and agony of hell. But that was not the end of the story. Rather, that was just the beginning. The beginning of the happily ever after. And it all begins with God's love. The truth is that the fullness of God's love outweighs the immense weight and burden of all of the sin of all mankind. The power of God's love is stronger than the mightiest gates of hell that imprison all sinners. The breadth of God's love is wider than the great expanse that separates man from God. And on that most historic and momentous Sunday morning, God's love reached across the great divide and broke the gates of hell and and raised his son, Jesus Christ, out of the grave, back to life, leaving all of our sins behind. And on that most glorious Sunday, when Jesus walked alive on earth again and comforted a troubled Mary and ate and talked with his marveling friends, it was that day that hope for a happy ending was restored to the narration of history. Because that's what history is, his story. God's love story for his prodigal children. God's love conquered sin. God's love canceled selfishness and hate. God's love bridged the gap between himself and his lost creation. And this is what we celebrate on Resurrection Day. That we have a living God and Savior that loves us and did everything that was necessary for us to enjoy his love again. And as we now grow closer to the last pages of his story, there's only one thing that will determine if your story will have a happily ever after. Will you receive God's amazing love? I was going to share with you a song. I can't get it to work. But if you want to take your hymn books, we're not going to sing. I want you to look at the words of hymn number 44. We sing it often in church, and can it be that I should gain? If you just look at the the verses, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. And the chorus, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Amazing love, how can it be that God, thou, my God, shouldst die for me? No condemnation now I dread. I am my Lord's and he is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. 
amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's the story of the resurrection. That's why Jesus died for us. That's why he came to earth in the first place. And that's why he's alive now. Because he loved us and he knew we needed to be restored in life. There are too many people who live this life absent of God's love. They don't want anything to do with it. Because they're afraid of what they'll have to give up. But I'll tell you what. What we lose by rejecting God's love far surpasses anything we have to give up to follow him and love in this life. Because we lose eternity. We lose that relationship that God created us for in the first place. And we lose all joy and all blessing by not returning the love that God had for us. As we remember and celebrate Easter, we tend to focus a lot, and we should, on the death of Christ, on his resurrection from the grave, the fact that we have a living Savior, and praise God that we do. But let's not forget that he did it all because he loved us. God is love. That's the story of the gospel. We need to remember that every single day of our lives, and it's that love, as we return that to him, that drives us to worship him in spirit and in truth, the way the Bible says. Let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father, again, we just thank you for your word. Thank you that we do have a risen Savior, and we thank you that he did everything for us. He gave his life for us because he loved us. He took hell literally for us so that we wouldn't have to because he loved us. And now he lives again. He came out of that grave because he loves us, and he wants us to have that same blessing of eternal life in in heaven with you. Lord, we just praise you and thank you for our Savior. Thank you for your love for us. Help us never to forget it, never to let it go out of our mind, and let us always strive to return that love to you that you've given to us. Even though we will fall so far short, Lord, let that be our desire through our lives. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're going to do. And we look forward to that day when we will be free from this earth, from this old body, and have a glorified body in your presence to worship and adore you forever in your presence. But until then, keep us faithful, we pray. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to close our service with hymn number 137. I don't know how better we can close a service rejoicing in the resurrection than to sing, Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah, 137. So if you'll stand with me.